0: Thank you. Hi, good morning. Good to see you. I'm uh, Brian Taylor. The, the day job is, as the political editor of uh, BBC Scotland, this is meant to be the downtime in politics. August is meant to be the the silly season. It's meant to be the quiet period. The, the unfortunate thing is that no one told the First Minister, and he's decided to hold a series of speeches. He's publishing a white paper later this week, and I gather, indeed, that he's even uh, appearing at the the Book Festival, doing a, a gig here. I'm not sure if he's appearing as the writer or as the First Minister, but anyway, he's keeping us all very busy indeed. I'm sure you're all enjoying the, the first few days of the Book Festival. It's a wonderful event. It's a clan of, of everything, of new writers, of established writers, of writers who are working in, in, in different genres. But today, I'm delighted to welcome Joyce Carol Oates, quite simply, a literary star. Uh, uh, your attendance here today indicates that as well uh, i i've uh, read uh, several of her books and, and found them delightful in, in particular the, the, the latest one the, the grave digger's daughter is a, is a is a modern epic of american life and i, I particularly uh, enjoyed reading that now joyce is going to read a little from that first and then we'll have some questions particularly keen to get questions from yourselves rather than from, from me it's it's your event as, as well as the, the author's event will you join me in welcoming joyce catalogs <clears throat>
1: Thank you very much, can you all hear me? Well, I am so delighted to be here, I'm thrilled and honored, and I notice that you have your characteristic Scottish weather. Great <laughs> sunshine, it's almost overwhelming. <laughs> I, like many Americans, I'm just so thrilled to be out of the country.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, to be in a civilized nation is such a feeling. <laughs> There's a new atmosphere, and it's so delightful. last time I had this feeling of, of sheer happiness and elation was when I, I crossed the border into Canada. <laughs> and now you have a new prime minister, and we are just thrilled and, and very, very excited in the United States. So I'm going to be reading from my new novel. As I say, I'm so so excited to be here and so thrilled. This is such a famous literary uh, Festival. I've been here a couple of times previously. I must say, in the last time in 2002, it was pelting rain and very dark, <laughs> about as dark as it is in this, uh, in this tent. And so I mistakenly thought that was typical Scottish weather. But today we know it really is quintessential. <laughs> now, this novel, The Gravedigger's Daughter, I, in a way I can't believe that it. it's actually been published. It was a novel that I had anticipated writing for many years and I didn't feel that I was emotionally ready to write it. It's based, it is fiction, but it is based upon events that happened in my family. Actually, many years before I was born, my, I a grandmother with whom I was very close, my father's mother, uh, who mar- She married a man named Oates, obviously, who was an Irishman, and she she um, was the grandmother who was closest to my heart. She had so much to do with my early feelings of being loved and, and cherished, and uh, she was my literary grandmother in the sense that she gave me books and gave me my first typewriter. And then many years after she died, it certain things about her life came to light that were very shocking and very disconcerting and surprising and left me with such an air of melancholy and and alarm that I had never really known my grandmother. I think we all feel when we're children that the adults in our families are somehow just there for us. It would not have occurred to a child that a grandmother or grandfather or, or parents had a previous life in which he or she was a child, um, a, a young adult, a young married person, preceding the actual birth of the child. And so I was sort of rediscovering a person I thought I had known when a man named Greg Johnson wrote a biography of me. He went around and was interviewing members of my family. It came to light then, unknown to any of us, that my grandmother had been Jewish She had been born of German Jews who emigrated from Germany in the 1890s and they had a a tragic uh, family experience, which I write about in the novel. I found out about, as I said, many years after my grandmother had died. So when we were growing up in our family, there were many things that were not talked about, but I think characteristically, as in most families, I mean, many, all of our families, I think, are alike in this. There are things that are just too sad to talk about, and there's no reason why a child would be burdened with these, these family memories, so I knew nothing about them. And then my novel, The Rave Digger's Daughter, is about this grandmother whom I did not know except as a grandmother when she was, I wouldn't say she was just playing a role because it was very genuine. She was the quintessential grandmother who loved her grandchildren, and, and, and the grandchildren loved her, but we never really knew her. She was a gravedigger's daughter, and she did come from a world exactly like the world I'm writing about. I had to imagine the world, though I didn't invent it, and there's a crucial distinction. In much of my writing, I'm not inventing the world. I'm certainly not n- inventing the political and, and cultural and moral context of that world. That's, that's actually historically there. I have to imagine what it was like to have lived through it, and so this is what the, the novel's about. So, I'll read a little bit, and I'm so anxious to get to, to commentary and, and to questions from the audience, which is a right as reward for all these months and years of solitary confinement to actually <laughs> discover that there are real people there. The Gravedigger's Daughter. November 1936. By bus, the Schwartz family arrived in the small town in upstate New York. Out of nowhere they seemed to have come with bulging suitcases, valises, and bags. Their eyes were haggard in their faces. Their clothes were disheveled, their hair uncombed. Obviously they were foreigners, immigrants. It would be said of the Schwartz that they looked like they'd been on the run from the Führer. In 1936, in such places as Milburn, New York, it was possible to think of Adolf Hitler with his mustache and military posture and stark staring eyes as comical not unlike Charlie Chaplin. The smell that came off him, the bus driver would so comment, rolling his eyes. It seemed appropriate that Jacob Schwart, the head of the family, would find work as caretaker of the Milburn Township Cemetery, a non-denominational cemetery at the ragged edge of town. He and his family, wife, two sons, infant daughter, would live in the weathered stone cottage just inside the cemetery gates. Mr. Schwartz was profusely grateful to township officials who hired him, though he has no experience as a cemetery caretaker, nor even as a drave digger. He was a good worker, he insisted, with his hands and with his head. You will not regret, sirs, I will assure you. In fact, uh, parenthetically, I can tell you, he was a mathematics teacher at a very prestigious prep, prep school in Germany before the anti-Semitic laws forced him and his family out of, out of Germany. At the time they'd moved into the cobwebby stone cottage in the cemetery, the Schwartz youngest child, Rebecca, was a sickly five-month-old infant tightly wrapped in her mother's filthy shawl. For much of the bus ride from downstate New York, the shawl had functioned as, as a sort of secondary diaper for the fretting infant. So little she was, her brother Harris would afterward recall, she looked like some hairless thing like a baby pig and smelled like one too. Pa would, would not look at you hardly. He was thinking you would die, I guess. I should say uh, parenthetically, Herschel is one of my favorite characters in the novel. He's a very hulking lad at about the age of 15. He's already like over six feet tall and very, very big. He was born in Germany and could speak German to some extent, then the family very hurriedly um, and and, and in a state of terror left uh, Germany and Nazi Germany came to America and then he sort of lost that language. The the father, because he's a a Jew who is um, a refugee, doesn't want to acknowledge that he's Jewish and doesn't want people to be thinking that they were even German, though obviously everybody knows they're German, doesn't want children to speak German. And so Herschel can't speak German in in the family, he doesn't allow that. But then Herschel doesn't really learn English either, so he's sort of between the two languages and sort of pre or meta-literate. So, but most of what he says in the novel has a certain insight, a kind of primitive instinctive insight, but he's uh, what we call in America grammatically challenged. Pa wouldn't have looked at you hardly, he was thinking you would die, I guess. Had she been Rebecca Schwartz then, she'd had no name and no identity so young. Of those early days and weeks, months and finally years in Melbourne, she would be called so little, for there was little memory in the Schwartz family. There was Ma who nursed her, and Ma who sometimes pushed her away with a grunt as if her touch were painful. There was Pa, Jacob Schwart he was, you could not predict Pa. Like the sky, Pa was always changing. Like the ugly, coal burning stove in the kitchen, Pa was smoldering sometimes and flaring up sometimes. You would not wish to press your fingers experimentally against the stove when the fire was up inside. Other times, the stove was empty of fire, cold and dead. Jacob Schwartz was profusely grateful to be hired by strangers in the small country town, yet Pa, brooding in the stone cottage, expressed a different sentiment. Like a dog, they wish to treat me, eh? Jacob, I am, eh? Because I am four and I am not rich, I am not one of them. One day they will see who is a dog and who is a man. Already as an infant, she would begin to acquire an instinctive sense that her father, this powerful presence that leaned over her crib, sometimes poked her with wondering fingers and even lifted her in his, his arms, had been grievously wounded in his soul and would bear the disfigurement of this wound like a twisted spine throughout his life. She seemed to know, even as she shrank from such terrible knowledge, that she, the last born of the family, the little one, had not been wanted by Jacob Schwart and was an outward sign of his wound. She would not know why. A child does not ask why. She would remember her panicked mother stumbling to her crib, clamping a moist hand over her mouth to muffle her crying, that Pa not be wakened from his exhausted sleep in the next room. No, please no. He will murder us both. And this last final section I'll be reading. If this is much longer, I'm gonna abbreviate it. And this is like one long paragraph. One long sentence almost, but I don't have this much breath, so it's a kind of hyperventilated intense. <laughs> The day Gus came running home from school, frightened and sniveling, asking Ma, what's a Jew? What's a damn Jew? Those kids on the post road were teasing him, and Hank Diggles threw corn cobs at him, and everybody was laughing like they hated him, and some of them he thought had been his friends. And Ma was near to fainting, looking at a drowning woman, tied a scarf over her hair and ran to find Pa in the cemetery stammering and panting for breath, and it was the first time in memory he'd seen her, his wife, this far from the house, outside in the cemetery where he was using a scythe on tall grasses and wild rose. He was shocked how frightened she appeared and how disheveled in her shapeless house dress, her legs glaring white, her face now was puffy and bloated where once she'd been a slender, pretty girl, smiling shyly in adoration of her school teacher husband, and she played Chopin, Beethoven, Mendelssohn on the piano. Oh, God, how he loved her. And now, this clumsy woman stammering broken English, so he had trouble figuring out what she was saying. He thought it might be those kids hiding behind the wall and teasing her, taunting her. And then he heard, he heard Jew, Jew he heard. He took hold of her shoulders and shook her, telling her to shut her mouth, Get back inside the house. And that evening when he saw Gus, who was 10 years old at this time, Jacob Schwartz slapped the boy open-handed across the face, saying these words Gus would long recall as would his sister Rebecca standing close by. Never say it. Thank you.
0: Indeed, two wonderful passages, wonderfully read from a book that really is uh, a, a wide-ranging story about c- contemporary America, as, as well as a, a story, of course, about uh, tragic events. I was struck, Joyce, by the, the, the extent to which there is role play in the book, even though, that the principal character ad- adopts a persona. Is that something that you were quite keen to reflect?
1: Yes, I've written about that in the past, uh, the, the roles that people take on. I think we all do this quite unconsciously and intuitively as we make our way through lives, but there are some people who belong to what we may call disenfranchised classes and uh, ethnic groups, and they they learn, some of them, not all of them want want to do this, but in the past, in America especially, they make their way um, with a kind of instinct. It's not necessarily cunning, and I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's a way, a a kind of analog to what Darwin meant by the uh, adaptation of a a specimen or a, a creature to its environment. The species has to change to its, adapting to its environment. And those who don't are extinct. And those who do can make their way. America, I think, has been uh, classically viewed as the kind of society, at least in theory, where one can do this. And there's a sort of camouflage Mm -hmm. uh, strategy in in operation. I've often written about people like that. I must be one of them myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jacob uses a phrase, doesn't he? I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something about the weakest weakest die, or the weakest are taken. You mustn't be weak. Uh, that, that, that the great error, as far as he sees it, is, is to be weak. And that's a phrase you repeat at various that's right. points. So well,
1: we're... I think that's the first, it might be the first line in the novel. In animal life, the weak are quickly disposed that's of. That's right. Hide your weakness. And it's an interesting thought, philosophically. You know, hide your weakness. I meant, when I first stood up at the podium, I was speaking about being in a civilized country, which implies I'm from a, some country that's that's challenged in certain ways. But we have leaders, we've characteristically had leaders in the United States who will not admit any weakness. And we have one right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe, maybe, Despite all
0: evidence to the contrary. <laughs> you <want> to be,
1: <laughs> well, maybe the beginning of an admission would just take so much time because so many weaknesses are obviously there. But, but this is a philosophical principle. When the leader of a pack, P-A-C-K, you know, like uh, a pack of wolves. <laughs> when that leader starts to show weakness, what happens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But that, that's a fa- it's a factor in politics generally. Is that we our, yeah, our leaders are, not, are are not allowed right. to show weakness at all. I think right, that, uh, right. it's the, the responsibility of the media for that. We we force them to be. To, to appear to have to be all-knowing, and of course they're not. It would be better if they could just say, "Hey, I've got no idea what I'm doing. Can somebody help me out?" You know? But
1: they would never say that.
0: No, I, they never would. I was struck by one yeah. phrase. I just draw a phrase from the book: "The deepest truth of the American soul is that it is shallow as a comic strip is shallow." That really jumped out for me.
1: Well, now that doesn't sound very American, does it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's another. Uh, it's another idea. You know, I, I, I did study philosophy as a, as a student. And I think, of, I think of our lives as being governed very much by instincts and emotions that we can't control, but then also by some ideas, and, and the ideas could be examined in a way that you can't examine your own unconscious. The American soul, I think, is, is possibly shallow. And what I meant by that is that the American soul, in the populist mass sense, okay. is easily led for a period of time maybe a, f- a small period of time i'm not sure that over a long period of time mm-hmm. that's true mm-hmm. and this was remark is in reference to comic strips and how we have a long history of reviewing comic strips some of our comic strips in america have actually been very very imaginative and very inventive you know and so the idea of the comic strip is that it people in comic strips have characteristics that are caricatures they have characteristic behaviors that are repeated again and again. And so, um, well, in, in a literary sense, Dickens was the great master of these comic characters. But in Dickens, of course, there's a depth of personality mm-hmm. uh, that you don't find in comic strips, obviously. Okay.
0: Now, I'm going to pass out to the, the audience, if you want to indicate in the usual fashion who wants to ask the first question from the audience. Um, can we bring the lights up just a little so that I can see who's asking, I think I see a hand raised there, please. A microphone should come your way if you... Yeah, that's better. Question there. Any, any, any others at this stage as well? We can get the, the mic to you as well. Yeah. Thank you. I was struck when you said that you didn't know if you were emotionally ready to write this book because what I wanted to ask you about were your books Man Crazy and Rape A Love Story, which reading those books, I'm sure anybody would have been touched by them, but reading them as a woman and the sort of depth of emotion and those really horrible circumstances that these women are in and how clearly and how courageously you wrote about those. And what I wanted to know is if you could just say something about how you handle that while you're actually writing the book. Do you sort of at five o'clock put it down and then how do you get that out of your head and kind of go to sleep the next at that night and kind of wake up in the morning and go back into that world?
1: well it's it's a very interesting question and and you may well be a writer yourself. I think that we're haunted by certain events in our lives. I won't go into the personal reasons why I would write novels like this because I don't believe in 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 you know talking about myself in a, in a especially in a very public way that's being taped, you know. But um I do have actual memories of some things in my life that i'm I'm often. Thinking about or remembering, and they were not happy experiences. But then I was wondering, as a writer, I have wondered this many times, whether those experiences that happened to me when I was much younger, whether they didn't have a, a very positive effect as well as a sort of injurious effect. I think the injurious effect on us when traumatic things happen is is immediate. You know, you, it's like, it's an immediate shock, and then you, th- you deal with it somehow emotionally, and then you keep thinking about it, and sometimes you just push it away and don't think about it for a long time. But if you're a writer, th- these things start coming back from the unconscious, and then you begin to write about them, maybe from different perspectives. I mean, I have written about uh, the victimization of women and, and girls. But I've also written about that these events from the point of view of a ma- of a male victimizer, and which gives a certain perspective, makes a context, while not forgiving of the e- of the event because I don't believe in I don't believe in a glib forgiveness for all sorts of things. So. It makes for some comprehension and understanding of of a kind of com- complexity there. So, Man Crazy is a novel very much based on a number of things in my girlhood. And one of them, the most positive thing about the novel is my, my memories of my father who, who flew a small airplane and I was taken up in this small plane by my, with my father. And that allowed for this unusual for our time because uh, the idea of air travel generally was not just not at all popular when I was growing up. Especially in my economic level, which is fairly modest. And so, by take being taken up in an airplane with your father when you're very young, like seven, eight years old, even younger than that, it allowed for um, a really interesting shift of perspective where you'd be flying over the homes, the houses in your own neighborhood, and sort of seeing things from that high perspective with your young father at the f- at the wheel of the, at the, in the cockpit of the plane, that, that really did something for me, I think, of a psychological nature that I didn't know, I wouldn't have known about when I was a little girl. Then that's conjoined in man-crazy with some traumatic events. And then Rape A Love Story, which is, which is a much more recent novel, is also very, very much about the kind of experience that a, a woman or girl can expect, and I would think of <coughs> a man or a boy too, can expect to meet from the criminal justice system if he or she (coughs) has been raped. The kind of uh, experiences that you have with police, officers, and with the media, and with the community, and with the criminal justice system, which can be very brutal, at least in my country. It's like a second, third, and fourth, and fifth uh, assault. And uh, the first assault is a physical one. And then you have subsequent assaults. And you can expect that to continue for as long as it's in the, in the public media. So rape a love story begins as a rape, and then it turns into a love story um, as it moves on. And we see that somebody comes forward and is actually solicitous solicitous and, and kindly and loving to the woman who's been, who's been raped.
0: Thank you very much. You. I, th- I think I saw the hand raised <laughs> there. Can you? Yep. If we can pass the mic along. Who's, who's next after that? I wanted to ask about uh, Minette from Black Girl, White Girl. I mean, out of all the wonderful characters uh, that you've written, Mm, I've found her so hard to like, but absolutely impossible to turn away from and not care about. And since you said that you had a favourite character in the new book, I feel justified in asking (laughs) how you felt about her when you were writing that and how you feel how you felt afterwards, if it changed, and perhaps now.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I, I just love Minette in in Black Girl, White Girl. She was such a strong, uh, indomitable, impossible person, and she's based on some. She's based on maybe a concept that writing as a Caucasian woman who went to college and and had certain roommates, and even before that in my life when I went to middle school, having classmates who were black, um, based on the, again, maybe a philosophical idea that we can't really know other people, though we must try to. We must try to know other people, and we must try to see things from their perspective. But I think ultimately the realization, at least in this novel, is that the white girl can't really know the black girl. And she has imagined that the black girl is much stronger than, than she really is. In a novel, Minette, Swift is like everyone's nightmare of a roommate, where you, you're a freshman in college, and you're 18 years old, you've never been away from home before, and you move into your dormitory, and you have a roommate who is so tough and so independent and kind of aloof. And you very shyly try to make conversation with your roommate because you're homesick and lonely, and the roommate just sort of ignores you. And then it turns out maybe a little later the roommate's forgotten your name, you know. And you're watching your roommate, and you're so. And then you see the roommate's going over to the dormitory, the residence hall cafeteria for breakfast, and you sort of hurry up, and you sit with your roommate. And the roommate's doing her homework or her textbook. she's looking at her her textbook and ignores you. It's sort of that nightmare of a young girl going away to college who has never been away from home and is now lonely and homesick and and wanting to make a friend, but the friend doesn't even seem to see her, so that's part of the experience of that novel, Black Girl, White Girl," and there's a kind of a uh, slash or an abyss between the two, the white girl trying so hard to make a friend who's a black girl, partly because the white girl's from a very liberal American family where there's been a lot of political activism and, and concern in the 1960s for civil rights. And so if the white girl could bring a black girl home, like at Thanksgiving, her family would be so impressed. <laughs> so part like a of trophy. that- yeah. Yes, yeah. like a trophy. And then the black girl, is sort of aware of that too and a black girl is thinking and saying once in a while she says or she certainly thinks that that she's not a black girl Yeah. she is herself.
0: But every so often she plays the role as well doesn't she, U- using, she is, using yes. southern accents etc. You know, yes uh,
1: and she can sort of play the liberals against themselves you know yeah. but I felt that that Manette Swift was a, was maybe a, a risky character for me to create as a white woman that I would be very harshly criticized for creating a black girl who is actually not nice. Because when and, and, wa- is,
0: and is partly responsible for some of the racist uh, oh, yeah. talks that she, she she endures.
1: She does, yes. And my editor, who is uh, white, my editor is a man. I mean... You know, <laughs> immediately we're just going to have to grant him a little bit of uh, something since he's, he's male. And he, he kept writing in the margins, like exclamation point and question mark, because... Uh, Manette is not attractive. You know, there's certain cliches of when white people write about black people and when white women write about black women, the cliches are usually that the black women are very, very gorgeous, very beautiful, just perfect, and they dress very well. You know, this is a sort of American liberal cliche. But as in my novel, the black girl isn't attractive. She doesn't try to be attractive. No. She's very, very closed-minded. She's a certain kind of right-wing Christian. And she's even critical of civil rights blacks because they were too liberal for her. So she was a character that my editor didn't like. And he said, well, couldn't you make her nicer?
0: <laughs>
1: and I said, well, Dan, this is supposed to be a real novel. It's not supposed to be sort of a, a fantasy or a this, fairy. This film. villain
0: you have, couldn't you make her nice?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you.
0: Not an easy call. OK, who's, who's next? Yes, please. Well, they're way at the back, they're, all, they're always away at the back, do forgive me. You. I, I got a tick, you'll get a microphone coming your way. Thank you, I've enjoyed your novels enormously, and I'm thinking now about The Falls, uh, which is very much a political, uh, it's got a political background. In this country in particular, um, the church doesn't have the same impact in moral education that it used to have. Um, an awful lot of our ethical background or um, influence comes from newspapers, and also from novels. Do you think that in your role as a novelist you have a particular task to do in bringing ethical, philosophical, moral problems to the public and that's a responsibility today of the novelist filling a gap that perhaps the church or others have left?
1: Hmm. That's a very interesting question. question. I think of the 19th century novel in both Britain and the United States is having, is having a very strong moral agenda. Certainly 19th century English novel and extremely concerned with the, the sorts of issues and values that you were indicating. The American 19th century novel is more uh, idiosyncratic. Uh, Herman Melville and Hawthorne and some others, they seem to be much more outside society and, and rebellious in ways that one doesn't think of George Eliot as being outside the society. But Toma- Thomas, uh, Thomas Hardy and, and a little later D.H. Lawrence and, and your wonderful writers of the 19th century and early 20th century, I think, have, have had this sense of literature being having a, mor- a moral ag- agenda. Wasn't it George Eliot who said that the role of the novelist is to extend sympathy? And then D.H. D. Lawrence takes that up also. So I would say that as I relate back to the 19th century, great, great 19th century writers and 20th century writers, I would feel that my role would be to extend sympathy and that this, it has a, a moral dimension to it. In the novel, The Falls, though, I grew up near Niagara Falls as a girl, and I saw the physical falls very often. The physical falls is just extraordinary. You can't believe what the Niagara Falls looks like. The Horseshoe Falls, and it's just one of these wonders of the world, which sounds like something like a cliche, you know, that it's a wonder of the world, but actually when you see it, you're just stunned. There's actually no words that you can use to describe Niagara Falls. And the Niagara River that feeds into it is just the most pounding, glacial, blue, amazing, rushing, powerful river, and then it's just overwhelming. So I had that experience of seeing that as a girl quite a few times. But then, later on, when I became an adult, I was reading about Love Canal and about the pollution, the chemical factories. Because of the falls being this wonder of the world and generating all this electrical power and all this power, there are all these factories that were, were built in that area. So it, it occurred to me that there are like two phenomena. One is the natural wonder that is so overwhelming it goes beyond our human language, but then the other is this very debased, industrial city of Niagara Falls. and First you see the falls, then you go to the city and see the very air is polluted, the the earth is polluted, the water is polluted. This became uh, a kind of political rallying point around the issue of Love Canal. In the late 1950s and the 1960s, Love Canal became one of these uh, heavily polluted areas that, that was taken up by the media. And it would be astonishing for most of you to learn that this began in the ni- late 1950s. It was neighborhood action against trying to do something about the pollution, where people were dying of leukemia, children were dying, there was miscarriages, all sorts of horrific cancers, and the establishment, the po- political, st- the politicians, the newspaper people, the university people the uh, local scientists and all, and the doctors were all in the pay of the chemical factories and they were all denying that there was any link between the air pollution, water and and earth and then all the cancers. So I was struck by doing research, how could somebody who was, say, a professor at a a medical school, a leading doctor in the area, head of the health... uh, like the new york state board of health or whatever it might have been or Niagara county board of how could a person like that deny that there was a connection between the, the pollution and and illnesses yet they did they 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 testified as expert witnesses for the defense when these lawsuits were brought up and one after another after another the lawsuits were thrown out of court this went on from in the early 1960s to 1978, that long a period. And so my idea as a novelist was to contrast the world of nature, which is so pristine and beautiful, with this fallen industrial world, all the more fallen and poisoned by the fact that human beings were basically taking bribes from the chemical factory owner. So it became something of a very, a very volatile, first it was a left-wing political issue, then it became very centrist, that it was President Jimmy Carter who finally designated the area, a disaster area, a national disaster area. That it took from the late 1950s to 1978, and I have to say it began with grassroots local people, it began with a housewife, a woman, a one woman who generated and started this going
0: story, thank you very much. Who's next? Now, you'll all regret it later because you'll all have little questions in your mind, so please ask them that. Yep, one, one at the back, and then there's a question that is down, down below. Yes, please. sir. Returning to what you were saying at the beginning about the shallowness of American society, uh, I wonder if you'd agree that in a way, it, it was a sort of Uh, necessary historical uh, posture because inclusiveness uh, was the great aim of American society at that time. I mean, there were so many immigrants uh, and that in order to uh, join these different cultures uh, quickly together, you know, you need to, in a way, smooth over some of the complexities of the differences between them. Uh, But what's gone wrong now is that the sort of shallowness has become the reality uh, Mm -hmm. without any kind of self-awareness of of the of the need for it, uh, mm-hmm. that it's become the upfront reality of American society.
1: Well, that's an interesting point. Obviously, these issues are very very complex, and in, in the novel, it's a kind of fleeting remark that somebody's thinking, rather than anything that the author, you know, wants to promulgate. I wouldn't erect a, a billboard in, in in you know in New York City and say, "The American soul is shallow." as a comic strip, Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, I, I don't want to be known for saying <laughs> that one thing. And I think what I meant by it was that there's a certain, f- a certain fleeting fickleness in our electorate, but I don't think over a long run, you can fool some of the people some of the time, or all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time. This is a, a statement that somebody, some wag, some philosopher made in, in the United States On the other hand, I think it was P.T. Barnum, one of our great leaders, who said, "You can't go broke underestimating the vulgarity of the (laughs) (laughs) Americans."
0: Our our own uh, new prime minister, Gordon Brown, is seeking to emulate at least one aspect of American life. He's a great fan of of the, um, the American way and has regularly been there. But one thing he's trying to emulate is is Using the Union flag, using a sense of Britishness, and he, it's been misinterpreted in Scotland to some extent as saying that he's running away from his Scottish roots. I think it's primarily trying to borrow that American idea if of getting everyone that, together. Yes. You know, if if yes. you can't agree on anything, just you know, salute the flag. Is is that a something? Yes, that that's me?
1: wonderful. Well, we're very thrilled with the pri- new prime minister. By we, I mean people that I know. You know, <laughs> people, my friends, were just very thrilled and we're so hoping that there'll be a whole new, I mean, there already is a different tone and different, different codes are being uh-huh. sent out, different political. You thought uh, his tone
0: with Bush was notably different?
1: Uh, notably different, so thrilling. It was decoded and deconstructed. I was reading it very carefully. It just was, I thought, a triumph. Yeah. But then that's just my friends. I'm from Princeton, which is a very liberal, community. The United, if you could see a sort of big map of the United States, before there was like a, like a, a what was it, like an ape or begins with a, a protoplasm or something that went to an ape and then something walking erect and then finally sort of a, an ape man and then some a Cro-Magnon reading a book, wasn't this here yeah. a few minutes ago? Well, that's sort of uh, like the American electorate, you know, we're sort of <laughs> hoping that things will rapidly improve. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Against all expectations. Yeah. Please.
1: Um, I'm ashamed to
0: say that I've come to your work very, very late, but I know that I've got a wonderful treat in store reading, reading more of your work. But the only novel that I have read is Broke Heart Blues. Could you tell me which couple of books that you personally would say to someone like me, read next?
1: Oh, thank you. What a, what a, nice, what a nice question. Uh, Broke Heart Blues was my homage to a certain... Uh, to nostalgia, the very idea of nostalgia and what's meant—nostalgia is sort of a false memory for things that never really happened quite like that—and mm-hmm. yet there's no feeling quite so powerful in us as nostalgia, it's sort of a wave of emotion that you feel for some past. It could be 20, 30 years ago. It could be what, when you were in high school or middle school, when you were, went to your grandparents' house. Some sort of a feeling of memory for the past or looking at old photographs. And it's a very selective emotion. And it's supposed to be a kind of f- fictitious emotion. And yet, it's so real when you feel it. You can write a complete novel. You could probably write a whole sequence of novels out of a strong feeling of nostalgia. Like Marcel Proust with the remembrance of things past, which is a powerful, uh, the, the sentiment of nostalgia. But obviously, the novel that I have written most recently, that most writers feel very attached to, the more recent work, *The Gravedigger's Daughter*, which is uh, very close to my heart. Then I wrote a novel a few years ago called *Blonde*. Which is the imagined life of Norma Jean Baker, who became Marilyn Monroe. Mm. That's another novel very close to my heart. So, those are two. And then, Rape, a Love Story was mentioned. That's a novella. It's only about 120 pages. For those of you who don't really want to read 900 pages <laughs> about Marilyn Monroe, there's a, s- a short, distilled form. I love the novella form. To me, that is a beautiful form of literature. It can be uh, as short maybe as 90 pages, 100 pages, 120, 140 pages. These little, little short novels that are actually very, very difficult to write. I'm sure there are writers in the audience, and I find that the short story is a very engaging form. The novel also, but the novella is very difficult because of the structure.
0: So there are a couple of uh, suggestions for you, though. You can take those up. Who's next? I see a hand raised there, please. Yep. Keeping you fit here, I'm afraid.
1: It takes a lot of courage to speak in such a large audience. If I were sitting out there, I'd be terrified. <laughs> <Is this laughs> what, you? Yes, please. You've
0: just mentioned um, short story. And many years ago, you wrote what I think is almost, well, a perfect short story, Small Avalanches. And I wondered if you could just comment on its origins.
1: Oh, Small Avalanches is actually a small story. It's a first-person narration by a girl who's 13 years old. She's going, she sets out on what will be actually a first I, if I say sexual experience, that makes it sound wrong, I mean, it gives a wrong idea. It is the first experience that she will have as, as a sexual being. Uh, the, there's a man uh, who's attracted to her and is a, a would be predator. Nothing happens to her, basically, nothing, nothing happens to her except maybe emotionally. And she sets off telling the story about an experience that when we hear it, because we're adults and we know how dangerous she's getting herself into this situation, Uh, She doesn't seem to know it, she's naïve and and, and ingenuous, and it's a story told in her voice, but then finally at a certain point in the story, she escapes her predator, and then she comes home and her mother's in in the kitchen, she comes and joins her mother. Uh, It's a story that is kind of close to my heart because it's set right in my old house, and my gran, my we live with my grandparents and basically when I read the story I've read it aloud a few times. It's easy to read because it's just a very short story. And then it ends with in the kitchen with my own mother, so it has a kind of nice ending for the author.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was that some was that something you took from the, the story?
1: Uh-huh. Right. Mothers never know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. okay.
1: Yes, yes, yes. OK. coming into the normality of the kitchen. Yes, coming to the normality. I I teach at Princeton University and when I come in my class sometimes and we have a workshop and it's just like a seminar room and the students are talking before the class begins and I'll sort of sit down and I sort of hear them talking amongst themselves. And the predominant theme of the, that student young people have in the early 20s is that they have to shield their mothers from knowing what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and it really was a predominant theme. And I was asking them about it, like these young men and, and girls too, they're like hitchhiking or backpacking around Europe or all around the world, they're doing all these risky things. And they're having all these adventures, and I, and I said to, to them, I said, well, what would your parents think if they knew what you were doing? I said, oh, no, no, we never tell them. <laughs> and this one boy, a young man, he's just, he said, very, with a little smile, he said, especially, you have to protect your mothers from knowing what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so those of you who are parents with college-age students...
0: If they're at home now, just think what they could yeah. be doing.
1: <laughs> it's a lot worse than you know. <laughs> Please. I'm just wondering, you're a prolific writer, and um, I'm wondering if you could talk just for a minute about the process. In other words, I don't know, imagination, uh, drafting, revising, and then in terms of the discipline of actually getting it out on paper. Mm, okay. Well, for, for me, writing is very much imagining first. I use that word quite a bit, Ima- imagining, trying to imagine what actually happened. In many cases, or maybe 100 percent of the time, I write about actual places. I love to write about landscapes. I'm thrilled to see certain landscapes, natural uh, fields and, and mountains and, and, uh, and lakes. And basically, I just there's something in, in me that's very excited by a landscape. I like some cities too, especially if the water goes through the cities intersecting in certain ways. And so I'm haunted by these landscapes and then I think about putting people in certain places. Sometimes, for instance, riding on a train in the evening and you're going by some houses and you see some houses somewhere and there's a light upstairs in, in someone's room and you think, well, maybe there's like a, a 14-year-old girl or 18-year-old boy in that's his room or something. And you get such a feeling of, of, of melancholy or wistfulness. I'm not sure how to explain it, but it's a very strong emotion Then I I think of a person who might be living in that house, and then what his family is like, and what the landscape is like, and and where this person goes to school. And so basically, it's an idea that begins with some visual glimpse of something and an emotion. And I can write a whole novel generated by feelings like that, especially conjoined with uh, knowledge of a place like Niagara Falls, which has a kind of intellectual and political context to it, too. I don't mean to suggest that my writing is impressionistic only. I think it begins that way. I will then put a a family in a political setting in a certain era. It's a certain culture, there's a certain popular culture. And my writing tends to be very densely detailed, and and there's a certain texture that um, of real life, even though it begins with an impression.
0: But how do you find the discipline to turn that impression, glimpse through the yes. windows of a train, into you know a 600-word, 600-page novel?
1: Yes, I I spend a lot of time walking and running. I like to run, and at that time, I think of the things I've been just mentioning, like the person in a room and a certain landscape. And then I start seeing how there might be a little vignette, like a little cinematic story. Mm-hmm. And it begins with a visual. And I tell myself this story, like the beginning of the falls is very cinematic. It's like something that could be in on a movie. You get to see somebody running, and then he throws himself over the railing into the, into the Niagara Falls. And that has been a, a symbolic place for suicides for, for many decades. It's so beautiful and so mystical people throw themselves over the railing into the Niagara Falls, and the bodies are carried away and often not even found. So it's not, it's not a vulgar kind of death, you know, where you're gonna be found immediately, but it's a, it's a kind of mystical death. And so I begin with that scene that's very cinematic while I'm running, and then I come back to my study, maybe an hour later or so, and I write something down very rapidly that I remember from my daydreaming. And then this is the first action that's that's verbal. Mm So I start amassing all these pages. I have many, many pages of notes. I can have a thousand pages of scrap notes before I begin a novel, and then it be, then it shifts to something different. It's much more structured and more literary, but I but it starts with impressions and feelings, and sometimes a feeling of nostalgia, and then at some point it gets conjoined with philosophical ideas and political ideas, so that it has a different a, a different uh, density and starts to get more like a, like real life.
0: That my, my own personal nostalgia is remembering fondly the last time Dundee United won two games in a row, which is... <laughs> I really have to go back a long way for that one. <laughs> who's, who's next? Yes, please. I've just finished reading You Must Remember This, which I identified with because I grew up in the Midwest, oh. and you referred earlier to detail. And that's what struck me. And I thought, how does she remember this? You came up once with the name
1: of a perfume or something. And I thought, yes, I'd forgotten about that. Um, You've talked about how you structure uh, and and build up your novels. But do you actually spend a lot of time researching? Or do you have a good memory? (laughs) For you must remember this. Uh, That was generated by my feelings of going over um, a railroad bridge and the railroad, the trestle bridge, and then being on this railroad bridge, of, which was a f- pedestrian footbridge alongside a railroad track where the train would come and everything would vibrate over the Erie Canal, that was what generated that whole novel. I remember that so, so, so strikingly. I wouldn't have thought that I could write five, 600 page novel generated by that, but it all came back. Much of it's memory, and then I do a lot of research, but I love to do the research the research is the innocent part you can just research and now with the internet i've never done i've never re- researched a novel at least not very much on the internet because i was writing before the internet became so popular but now you could do so much on the internet with calling up historical documents and all sorts of cultural remnants so I would have to actually go to a library, you know, physically go to a place and take down books. And, but that was good, too. That's a, nice, that's a nice feeling to do that.
0: Would you like to go to the place? <coughs> if you're writing about, in that case, the Midwest, would you, would you go there? Oh, or yes, physi- of yeah,
1: course. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. It's a good excuse for a little trip, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: Sometimes I've actually written about places I haven't seen for quite a while. But then before I've sent off the manuscript, I'll make sure that I go there and sort of revitalize myself. There are parts of America. I'm not sure you are not aware of, of this necessarily. The United States is very, very large, and it's it's a place of regions, and the regions are very different from one another. And we were spe- I was speaking sort of facetiously earlier about the political situation in America. It's basically a kind of red <coughs> a red country in the sense of being very right wing and 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 politically conservative, I think, overall, but then pockets that we call blue of the big cities where people, uh, it's more mixed and people, mixed ethnic backgrounds and people are likely to be Democrats and to vote in a liberal way, and then educated uh, th- cities with universities. So it's like this wash of red for the whole country, like the state of Texas, all red state, but with Austin, the capital, where the great University of Texas is, and one of the great universities, is a blue area. So, And that's the way that in uh, California and New York state. So the, the United States is an area that's very uneven in these ways, but also, Economically, there's some parts of the United States are just booming with money. The, the property values are so high and so, so very expensive. So like the city of London, parts of London, enormously expensive. And then other parts are very depressed economically. I mean very depressed. The parts of upstate New York where I come from are, have been economically depressed for decades. And so when I go back to these places, in New York State and elsewhere, they haven't changed. Mm -hmm. As one of the consequences of economic depression is that there isn't any change. There isn't a boom of skyscrapers and, and new housing developments. It's basically the same old buildings are there that were there when you were 12 years old. So when I go back to these places, it's like I'm going back in time. And to do research for a novel like You Must Remember This, which this young woman mentioned, uh, it's just a matter of going to the place, which is also like going back in time. Then I come forward in time because I live in Princeton, New Jersey, near New York City, which is one of those affluent areas that's all being built up all the time. And so that is like the present. Day, looking to the future and other parts of the United States are the past, looking into the, into an even deeper past
0: people that often have preconceptions I recall filming with, with uh, uh, an American TV producer and we were interviewing during interview Alex salmon by chance he was speaking in Motherwell at the, the party conference, a local party conference there. And this guy stood outside and he said, what the hell's this? Where's Scotland? This looks like Cleveland, Ohio. You know, and he, was, he, was, he, he expected Scotland to be you know, the Loch Ness Monster and, 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 and lochs. And he, he wasn't taken with Motherwell at all. <laughs> a, 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 a lovely town, he ha- hastens to add, in case anyone comes from there. Please, probably, probably time for one more or two if there's anyone desperate to get in. Yeah, we'll take the other question there.
1: Hi, um, you mentioned Blonde, which is absolutely magnificent. And I was wondering if you could talk um, more about how you placed, you draw the distinction between Norma Jean Baker and Marilyn Monroe. And um, I was wondering if you could say something about how you placed Marilyn Monroe or Norma Jean Baker um, as the kind of 18-year-old girl in the lighted window um, that you mentioned earlier. I was just wondering how uh-huh. you, the transformation, you know, how yeah, that worked. Yeah. Well, I I was never particularly interested in Marilyn Monroe. I didn't know her work that well. And yet I saw a snapshot of a girl who was about 16 years old. And she had brown hair, brunette hair that was curly. She had a little, uh, some flowers in her hair, uh, artificial flowers. She was pretty in a high school girl way, very ordinary pretty girl. And she did not look much like Marilyn Monroe you would not ever have anticipated that this pretty high school girl of about 16, Norma Jean Baker was her name, would just in a few years become Marilyn Monroe. It was in 1947 that Marilyn Monroe first got her name. The name was sort of given to her by studio producers. And 1947, and this photograph had been taken some years earlier. I'm not sure what the time difference was but probably like five years at the most, five years of transformation. So when I saw this picture of the high school girl, she looked like girls I went to school with, and she looked maybe a little like my own mother when my mother was younger. And I just felt such a a feeling for her. She's the kind of girl we went to school with who got married young, who dropped out of school, and then never went on to educate herself, and, and is sort of forgotten except in Norma Jean's case, she was made to get married when she was 16 years old. In a comp- for a complicated way, she was an orphan. Uh, she did have a mother, but her mother was not able to take care of her. So basically, she was put in an orphanage and she went to fo- foster homes. When she was 15 years old, her foster family was going to move away, and she was going to be sent back to the Los Angeles County Orphanage, which was a very harsh place. And they felt so sorry for Norma Jean, who was so sweet. A sort of a typical orphan. That's what Marilyn Monroe was. That's why she so yearned to be loved by audiences and by men. She called every every man she became involved with, she called daddy. She called her husband's daddy. She was somebody who was yearning to be loved. She had sort of a hole in her heart that nothing could ever, ever fill. So when she was, she just turned 16 and her family, Foster family felt very sad for her, and they said, why don't we find someone to marry Norma Jean so that she doesn't have to be an orphan again. So she, she got married when she was just two weeks over 16, and sh- that was the girl in the photograph. I didn't know this when I saw the photograph, but I thought, how interesting to write a novella of about 140 pages or so about a girl named Norma Jean and then my last line of the novel would be Marilyn Monroe, that we, we didn't really know who she was, and then she, because she didn't know. She didn't know she was going to be Marilyn Monroe. You know, nobody knows they're going to be so famous when they're only 15, 16 years old. And so my novella, I thought, would be so clever that it would be very short and would end, and we realize, oh, this girl is going to be Marilyn Monroe. And we sort of realized that this is who it is, and that's the end of the novel. Then I got to that point in my writing, and I thought, I can't stop now, because her life is just beginning. At that point, I'd really fallen in love with Norma Jean, and I so wanted her to be happy and to do well. And so I wrote all together. Instead of 140 pages, I wrote 1,400 pages. (laughs) So if any of you think that novelists tend to be a little bit crazy, (laughs) a little bit deranged, this is evidence, I think.
0: I'm going to have to draw it to a close, I'm afraid. That's been a quite wonderful session for me, particularly memorable. If I remember one phrase in particular, I shall remember your phrase about the the writer being someone who offers sympathy. I think that really was quite a a striking phrase and a striking description. Um, Your descriptions of your own work, your descriptions of the way you research your work were really, really lovely and uh, plainly a very empathetic, sympathetic person yourself. Will you join me in thanking Joyce Carol Oates? If you'd you'd be kind enough just to give us a couple of seconds, we'll be going next door to the signing tent for the lady who asked the question and for all of you an opportunity to uh, get your next uh, books in in the, in the, in the, the run. Will you give us a couple of ticks to get next door? Thanks very much.